We are for the church and for the kingdom. This vision drives everything we do. There are many noble causes and institutions in this world, and we care about the future of seminaries, academies, governments, social causes, and parachurch ministries, but they are not fundamentally why we exist. We exist for the future of the church and the advancement of God's kingdom. With God's help, our students today will be the pastors, ministers, and missionaries of the global church tomorrow. We teach the Bible in the classroom so that generations of churches will be sturdy outposts of Christ's kingdom. This is how we serve the church, and this is how we bless every other good and noble endeavor until God's glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. Will you join us? All right, hello everybody. I bring you personal greetings from Augustine of Hippo. <clears throat> he did say it was Augustine. Um, he insisted on that. From Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great, um, many of the people that I've known personally over the centuries. And <clears throat> turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, as you're reading that, I just want you to sort of think about um, this mental exercise. If you were to pick the Mount Rushmore of biblical texts for you personally, like, so you only get four, right? That's the idea. Uh, which four would they be? For me, it, you'd have to include Genesis chapter one, right? Have to have that. Um, I think Re the Revelation chapters 4 and 5, they're a unit, no question, that would be on the list. Um, some people would say Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> I would. One of them is this, though, it's uh, John's prologue, um, <clears throat> which I'm going to read, and I'm going to point out something about it that pertains to the text that I actually want to look at. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. <clears throat> there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. <clears throat> he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you notice in that prologue, it, it, there's so much that stirs the heart by way of <clears throat> thinking about worshiping the Lord, and, and rightly it should. But you also notice there's a, there's a darkness to it as well. In many ways, one of the saddest ver verse in all of Scripture is this one. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
One of the, I mean, it's one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture, although it appears in this passage that we all look to and, and think about the, the grandeur, the majesty of Christ. This is one of those passages, as is some of the others I've mentioned. What that passage prepares you for is conflict. As you read this, you know that must mean that the Gospel of John will feature Many instances, as it does, of course, between, of, of conflict between Jesus and the, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Uh, you especially see that in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, 9. I mean, you just as you go right through that middle part of John's gospel, it's just kind of like Thunderdome the whole time. And that's because Jesus is not like us. He's different. He is, if I may put it this way, he's, in the best sense of the word, the alien among us in in John's gospel. He's the one perpetually glorified all the way through John's gospel. And there's this stark contrast between who Jesus is and who everybody else is. And that means that in so many instances, there's conflict. No wonder, therefore, that this same author when he's describing what the nature of life will be like in the time between the resurrection and, the, um, <clears throat> and our glorification, he describes it as a war. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 and following. Listen to just, just the tone of, of warfare that you have here. John writes, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. That's his main weapon, is deception. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser. That's the other weapon, deception and accusation. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Therefore, when you're living the Christian life, there's a very real sense in which you live behind enemy lines. right? You're in, in many ways in a uh, hazardous situation and... <clears throat> That should raise a question that is answered in the text that we'll look at today, and that is, if you have all these supernatural forces arrayed against you, powers and principalities, the Apostle Paul will call it, you should wonder, uh, how on earth will we ever persevere? How's that going to happen? What assurance do we have that we will persevere? I mean, if it's just about us, if it's just about our own wherewithal, uh, the answer is we won't, right? Not going to happen. But there are resources put on our side. There is someone in particular, this is the key, 
on our side, and he's our good shepherd. And because Jesus is who he is, we will persevere. That's what this passage is about. It's about assurance of our salvation and the means whereby we get that assurance. And the first one comes, the first reason for our hope, our hope of assurance comes in verses one to six, where you're told that genuine Christians know the shepherd's voice. Look at verses one to six with with me. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This is is how sheep separate. They all look alike. You wonder, well, how does one, one shepherd get his sheep to follow him and pick them out in a crowd of of many sheep owned by other shepherds? And the answer is because the sheep come to him. His voice is distinctive. Verse 4, when he had brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Voices are distinctive. Um, (laughs) Wasn't too long ago, I was in a department store, and I'm just wandering around. I'm with my wife, Lee, and, and, um, you know, she's in one part of the store. I'm in another part, and at some point, I'm sort of like, okay, I wonder where she is, actually. And I heard her cough, just her cough. And I knew, okay, well, that's her. Like, I just knew. Like, as soon as I turned around, looked down the aisle, there she is. I, even her cough is distinctive to me. There have been other times in which we'd, been, we'd be in a crowd, and she would call out to me just very quietly, Tar, like that. Just, and I know, that's her. Like, I can tell. Even though there are all kinds of other people, I recognize her voice. Now, I realize in this analogy, that makes me the sheep and her the shepherd, so I'll be turning in my man card to Dr. Umstead um, <laughs> later. I've got it with me. I'll just hand it over. Um, but you understand, voices are distinctive. And what Jesus is saying here, part of the reason for our assurance is that we will be drawn to his voice. Now, in concrete detail, what that means is that God's people will be drawn to sound doctrine and sound teaching. They will. They'll make their way to that. They will, they will be drawn to that, and the goats will not. The goats will be repelled by that. The sheep will be drawn to <clears throat> that, that truth. And, and that's an assurance. That's a, that's a basis for hope that we have, that, that God's people who are truly converted will be drawn to the truth. They, they will not sit forever under false teaching. At some point, they'll recognize <clears throat> this isn't right. One of my friends, he's with the Lord now. He, he was a um, <clears throat> lifelong Roman Catholic. And at about age 50, he, um, <laughs> he, he had worked at TWA. You know, that's an airline company that went under, you know, in the Stone Age, right? But they used to be here in KC. And, and um, 
he worked there, and he, every, every day at lunch, he was kind of a mid-level supervisor. He saw this young kid who was a Christian. He had his Bible out. He was reading it in the break room, and he said, I would just harass this guy mercilessly. And he was very good at it. He's very smart, so he could get away with that, you know, as far as being funny about it. But he said, you know, I was viciously doing this. It wasn't, you know, I'm not trying to bring him any kind of happiness. He says, I just wanted to harass him. And he said, at some point, he fell under conviction. He's like, I'm a bad person, okay? He knew that. And he went to the Barnes & Noble up here at Zona Rosa, and uh, he said, I bought this Bible. And he said, I, I started to read it. He said, it was just clear that what this book was saying was not what he was being told in his church, his Catholic church. He's like, it's just not true. And uh, he had to uh, turn away from that. And he, it, my point is this, he was a sheep who made his way to the truth. He understood the difference between the master's voice and any other voice. That's part of our assurance. But now look with me at verses 7 to 13. Another reason why we'll persevere, another reason for our hope is that our shepherd will protect us at all costs. Look with me at verses 7 to 13. So Jesus again said to them, truly I, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He's the sole access point. That's why he calls himself the door. There isn't any other way. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. <clears throat> I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Our shepherd will lay down his life for us and has. That's the point. He already has. As we look at John's gospel, Jesus is speaking of what will happen. We're looking at it now in terms of what has already happened. He has laid down his life for the sheep. March, 13, <clears throat> March um, 30th, 1981, um, Ronald Reagan is coming out of the Washington Hilton Hotel, and he's just about three months into his presidency, and he's coming out of a side entrance, and a man named John Hinckley um, had a 22 caliber revolver. Saturday night special, and he pulls this out. He's right at the rope line and starts firing right at, at, at Reagan. And it's amazing, you know, it's kind of a grim thing, but if you see that film of that attempt on Reagan's life, the Secret Service acted so quickly. It's stunning, actually, how fast they got him into the limousine and off the scene. But there was several people shot. Uh, James Brady, his press secretary, took a bullet right in the, right in the forehead. Um, he lived for many years afterward, but disabled. Another uh, Washington police cop named Thomas Delahunty was shot in the neck. Um, he recovered mainly, but there was one guy that, that put himself directly in front of Hinckley between himself and Reagan, and his name was Tim McCarthy. He was a Secret Service agent, and you can see him being shot like he falls backward and took this bullet for Reagan, and the Secret Service was so 
effective that the only reason why Reagan was hit was a bullet ricocheted off the limousine, became as thin as a dime and hit him under his arm on the left side as he was waving to uh, the crowd and they, they could hardly find the wound. Um, he was not hit directly and the reason why is that other people put themselves in front of him to keep him from being shot. They would trade their life for their protectee. And how much more do you know that Jesus has given it all for you? All of it, which means this, your security is complete. He has already given his life for you. He will protect your life at all costs. Verses 14 and following, our shepherd knows who belongs to him. Our shepherd knows who belongs to him. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's what he's just said, of course. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That would be you and me, okay? I must Bring them also. I must, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Just like Paul says in in, uh, Ephesians and also in Romans, there will be one new humanity in Christ. This is foreshadowing that reality. There will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus knows who belongs to him. I've spent a lot of time in my life when I was younger, uh, just hearing stories from my grandfather on my mother's side. Um, he was a missionary in um, Indonesia from 1938 and 60 years following. So a very long time. And uh, he had a highly eventful life, as you can imagine. Um, all kinds of dangers of, of, of an extraordinary nature. Um, and he went to a group of people <clears throat> that were kind of like the MS-13 of Borneo. Um, not much of an exaggeration. They were cannibals. They were headhunters. They were called the Dyaks. And he went there. They're in Western Borneo, and that was his people group. And, um, you know, of course, I'm hearing this, and I've seen these photos. You know, you form in your mind this stereotypical picture of the wild man of Borneo. So you can imagine a spear, some kind of grass skirt, which they had. (laughs) Okay, They had, like, bones going through their nose. I mean, everything you think, like the strange, like, tattoos and so forth. They look just fierce people. And... um, you're like, this is like as pagan as you can get. Like, how on earth would you ever reach these people? Like, what's it going to be like? You know, and so I remember like these occasions when I would ask him, I'd say, well, how do you even do that? You know, because he's literally hacking his way through a jungle and here they are. And he's the first white person they've ever seen. Uh, How's that going to work, right? And... um, of course, you know, he, he would give the kind of answers you would expect in terms of method. You know, he'd say, well, you know, of course, you, 
you got to start with Genesis. you got to start with creation. You have to kind of tell the story. You have to give the Old Testament backstory to the New Testament, because if you don't have the Old Testament, you have no idea what's going on in the New. Okay? It, you have to have some context for these things. And he said, so of course I'm doing that. But he said, behind all that was the assurance that the Lord knows who, who belongs to him. He knows. And the missionary work that he does is God's way of calling out the called, those people who, who are going to come to him. And it really, in the ultimate sense, it's, it's less about him and, and all about the power of God. And he said, that's what it is. And he, he, he uses this very text. He says, the Lord knows who belongs to him. And some of these people, as as sinful, as darkened, as violent, and so forth as you can imagine they would be, and some of them were extraordinarily bad, came out from among them and were saved. And, and, and I'm telling you, some of these people are like, the, the pendulum came from all the way over here to all the way over there. It, it was an amazing transformation. He said, it's, it's, it's a God thing. Our shepherd knows who belongs to him. That's a basis for perseverance. Verses 17 to 18. Uh, here's another foundation of our assurance that we'll persevere, and that is our shepherd controls life and death. So, for example, you're looking in the Revelation, it, Jesus will be described as the one who holds the keys of death and of Hades. Like, he, he has control of that. Same thing here. If you look with me at verses 17 and following... It says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So in this passage, Jesus claims control over something that we, regular folks, right? We don't control this, and that is life and death itself. Uh, you can try to eat right. <laughs> you can try to exercise. You can try to be as careful as you can when you drive and you should, all that. Okay, yes, but what's true ultimately is you're not in control of when you, live, when you die. Everybody dies, you're not in control of when, so you have to be ready. That's it. And whenever disaster strikes, we're impressed with these truths even more. You think about the worst day uh, in American history is September the 11th, 2001. Right? It's the worst day, obviously so. And you have people in those towers, right? The, the World Trade Center. It's something like 2,700 people died on that day. And then there were others in the Pentagon and also on the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. Um, right around 3,000, taking them all together. And uh, many of those people didn't know the Lord. They didn't. Just because they suffered in that tragedy, that's, you don't have justification by tragedy. You don't. Okay, there, there is no substitute for a decision for Christ that you make. You have to 
surrender yourself to Christ. You must do this. And, and one assumes that the majority of those people did not. Some did, of course. But they're not in control. And as they got up that day, it, the, the, the attack happened at about nine in the morning. As they got up that day, they might have told themselves, yes, yeah, just another day, you know, I'm, I'm middle-aged. Maybe I'm in my 30s. I'm going to be fine. You know, it's another day, big day, lots to do. They're thinking in their minds about the routines of life and and already planning their day. And then, no. Their lives are cut short. And they're not in control. And yet, in this passage, you see Jesus saying, but I am in control of that. There's a scene in the 19th chapter of John where Jesus asserts this control at the most counterintuitive time that he could do so. It's when he's being questioned by Pilate. Chapter 19, verse 1 says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. See, they're trying to mock him by dressing him up as a king. They came to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And of course, that's the burning question all the way through, John. Is he Jesus of Nazareth or is he Jesus of heaven? Well, we know what the answer to that is. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So verse 10, Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate is saying, do you understand, Jesus, um, Here's the script, okay? When, when you're going to be crucified, your, your, your role right now is to fall at my feet and beg for your life. I don't know if you knew that, but that's the script. That's what you do right now. So get on with it. Jesus said, answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus is saying, you you think you're in charge, do you? No, I'm in charge. I'm in charge even of life and death. And therefore, if our good shepherd has authority over life and death, he has total authority over your life and over your death. Therefore, the saints will persevere. Verses 19 and following. One of the disadvantages that the enemies of God have is that they reject Christ for no reason that's good. 
They don't have a good reason. Look at this, verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Verse 21, others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple, the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe, which is true. Like he has made these claims prior. You do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. That's why. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. But you see, the point is this. Jesus has been doing these signs all along any one of which would be sufficient to point to the fact that he's Messiah and Son of God. It's not like they don't have evidence for who Jesus is. Of course they do. They just don't want to see it. It's just a matter of will. It's not a matter of intellect. It's a matter of will. It's what they want to be true, and they don't want it to be true. Therefore, they just refuse to see it. That's it. It's no more complicated than that. But it means, therefore, that when they reject him, they do so without cause. They don't have a good reason. They just don't want it to be true. It's another reason why we can be assured of our our perseverance is that we're following the right shepherd. There is no question. Verses 28 to 29. Here's another reason for our assurance, and that is our Heavenly Father is invincible. His Father is invincible. Look at at what he says, verse 28. I give them eternal life. and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you have Jesus talking about himself, but then he talks about the Father as well. I and the Father are one. He's, uh, he, he can't be overcome. If you think about it, just Take an example um, <clears throat> from the Old Testament. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh's like, who is this God, right? Wrong zip code. This is Egypt. We're the home team, okay? My, our gods are the home team. <laughs> so whatever God you're talking about, Moses, he, he's a visitor, right? This is our turf right here. And uh, no, he, he's, I, I will not let them go. And then God says to Moses in Exodus 6, now you're going to see who I really am. Now you're going to see the full display of my power. And we know from Genesis chapter 1, one of those Mount Rushmore texts I talked about, we know from Genesis 1, this is not going to work out for Pharaoh. Why? Well, because the, the Exodus plagues in many ways recapitulate the creation account in microcosm, right? So God, he, um, he separates light from darkness, and you see one of those plagues uh, later against the uh, Egyptians. He makes the dry ground appear, right, in, in Genesis 1, and also when the Red Sea parts. He makes the ground teem with life. You see that in Genesis 1. You see it in the Exodus plagues. <clears throat> all the way through. 
God has total control over creation. So, of course, no, it's not going to work out for Egypt. No, okay? not when you're dealing with the God, not a God. And what you have here is, is Jesus saying, the God who creates everything from nothing okay, is on your side. He's on your side. Who, who can stand against him? And I and the Father are one. Verses 31 to 36. Another reason why we'll persevere is, is that if you think about it, our shepherd has the Old Testament on his side. We're following the right shepherd because he has the Old Testament on his side. Look at this, verse 31 and following. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. <clears throat> Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is, is it not written in your law? I said you were gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you were blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. This is from Psalm 82. Jesus is saying, look, um, <clears throat> this word that I've used just now, it is used and applied to the judges of Israel who have judged unjustly. And, and God says you were, <clears throat> you were God's lowercase g, obviously, in this sense. And you will die like men. And if it's somehow okay for that to happen, for that word to be used for them, how much more is it appropriate that I should call myself that? who is actually the capital G, Son of God. Everywhere you look in the Old Testament, when, the, when his adversaries try to use the Old Testament against him, it turns out to validate who Jesus is. Verses 37 to 41. Our shepherd has a perfect track record. Look at verses 37 to 41. We're following the right one. If I'm not doing the works of my father... Then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. <clears throat> Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again, <clears throat> excuse me, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man is, was true, and many believed him there. Jesus, in this context, says, just look at what I do, and you'll know who I am. Years ago, we, we had a debate. This is, <laughs> believe it or not, this is back when the Spurgeon Library was the chapel. I know that seems like that's a crazy thing, but that's where chapel was when dinosaurs roamed the earth and we had to stay out of their way. Anyway, so we're there and there's a debate between a, a Christian apologist named Jay Smith and a, and a Muslim guy. And I, I apologize, I forget his name. But they, they were having a debate about, you know, Christianity and Islam. And, and, and there was a point at which, and of course, if Christian apologists know this, like the lowest hanging fruit in the world is to talk about the actual life of Muhammad because it's, it's not a good story, okay? It's bad. Like, 
You know, I'm not trying to say 100% of everything he ever did is, is as maximally bad as it can be. I'm not. But there's enough bad there that you're like, well, I just, I'm glad he's, not, he, he's your guy because I don't want to have to defend him. Like, it's very hard to imagine that. And, and Jay Smith said this. He said, you know, I love Jesus because he's so easy to defend. It's just so easy, like because he's never going to give you a reason to think that he isn't our good shepherd, our son of God, the Messiah. He says, it's never going to happen, right? You, you look at the record that we have, and you know he doesn't put a foot wrong ever, never. Right? And, and here's his point. that If you think about it, <clears throat> our assurance comes from the fact that we're following the right shepherd, and he'll never give us a reason to doubt him. So, here's where we are. Um, it's becoming increasingly clear, I think you would agree, that we as Christians aren't, in this country and elsewhere in the world, we're not the home team anymore. We aren't. I mean, it's, there was a time here in the United States, North America, Western Europe, etc., where most people were wearing our jersey. They, they were. At least they wanted to be viewed that way even if they weren't for real Christians. They, they at least wanted to be thought of that way because that's, that was the accepted thing. Whereas now it's not. More and more people are just saying, no, okay? Christianity is actually harmful. It's, it's bad. It's the enemy, whatever you want to call it. And therefore, it, it would be normal for us. We ought to think this way. What is the basis of our assurance? Like, how, how do we know that we're going to press through, that having come to faith, we will remain in the faith? How, how do we know that's going to be true? And the answer is, it, it, it's really not about who we are, is it? it it's, it's about who God is, about who our good shepherd is. And all the texts that, that we've looked at today point to his sufficiency to bring us all the way home. Therefore, we can say with the Apostle Paul, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and he is, <clears throat> who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's Alexi, the accuser? Remember him? All right. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are super victorious through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord.
we're going to be okay. <clears throat> That's what this chapter is about. We're going to be okay. We'll, we'll make it. If you're a Christian now, for real, you'll always be one. Once saved, always saved. Our good shepherd is strong enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the security that you've given us, that you rescued us, that you brought us from death to life. Thank you, our good, great God, for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.